Hi folks, it's the Northern Miner Podcast. Come on over here. Welcome to episode 111 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, and we got a good show for you this week. Uh, we're kind of on the home stretch here of the Canadian Mining Symposium, and this week we have a panel called the Technology Solutions for Mining that's moderated by Bill Whitelaw. He's the president and CEO of JWN Energy, uh, part of the Glacier Group. And uh, on this panel, we have Stephen DeYoung. He's uh, chairman of Integra Resources and CEO of Verify. And George Gradle, global head of mining at SAP in Germany. And Liam Fitzgerald, he's the national mining leader of uh, PwC. It starts off as a technology panel, and then it takes a sharp left turn and talks all about the uh, communicating the story of mining. So we'll just uh, go with that. This podcast is sponsored by the Grosso Group out of Vancouver headed up by entrepreneur Joe Grosso, and they're a group of three uh, junior companies, all focused on Argentina, and they are Golden Arrow Resources, Argentina Lithium and Energy, and Blue Sky Uranium, and you can find more information about them at grossogroup.com. And uh, of the three, the latest big news is that Blue Sky Uranium, they've just raised, uh, in a non-brokered private placement, $3.5 million dollars, uh, another sign that uranium is on the rebound a bit. And that money will be directed towards exploration in Argentina and in GNA. And uh, well, their biggest project there is called Amarillo Grande. That's an in-house discovery. And our second sponsor is Yukon Mining Alliance. You can go to their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and follow them on Twitter at investyukon, all one word. They're a group of 17 uh, junior companies, or mostly junior, in the Yukon. We just had our staff writer, uh, Richard Quarisa, up on the uh, big media tour there a couple weeks ago, so he'll be reporting uh, what he saw. Perhaps the biggest news out of the whole uh, group there is Attack Resources put out a new resource estimate a couple weeks ago, the Osiris area of the um, Rakla project. They have come up with uh, 12.4 million tons at 4.23 grams per ton, so that's 1.7 million ounces in total. And in-pit resources is 4 million tons at 4.1 grams for 1.1 million in an open pit. So it's a pretty good start for attack. Let's take a quick look at metal prices. They're pretty terrible uh, these days with a strong U.S. dollar. This is uh, the July 6th close. We're recording this uh, Saturday, July 7th. So gold is at uh, 12.54, silver 16.01, platinum 8.42, palladium 9.45, and yeah, so gold has been down uh, $41 in the past month. Over in base metals, you have copper is uh, 285 a pound, zinc 126, lead 106, and nickel 628. Uh, just looking at the LME, uh, you know, we've just finished the first half of the year. Most of the Base metals are down for the first half. You've got copper down 8.1%, zinc 
Zinc down 13%, lead down 4 aluminum off 4.8, tin uh, a little bit down 2.5, and the two big winners uh, on the LME are nickel, which is up 18% uh, in the first half of the year, and cobalt is up uh, 3.1%. And just looking through the charts, one thing to note with the base metals is all these prices are dropping, even as the warehouse levels are dropping, so that's not a good sign. And it's all uh, coming down the last month or so. So just looking through the charts, it's all uh, downhill. Yeah, not pretty. There have been quite a few uh, reports put out by different groups about uh, industrial metals, so I, I want to take a quick look at that. You've got uh, CRU. They put out a study on vanadium, and that's one of the few metals that's done really well lately. So between June 2017 and May 2018, Prices for ferro-vanadium DDP Europe increased from 12 per pound to 30 to 32 dollars per pound. So that's the highest level in um, ferro-vanadium since 2008. And then uh, you've got Chinese vanadium pentoxide, that's V2O5. They rose from five, five to six dollars up to uh, 15 dollars per pound. So it's tripled uh, in May 2018. CRU cites a coincidence of cyclical, structural, and one-off factors to have triggered this uh, tripling. And they note that uh, in 2017, 2018, uh, the years leading up to that, weak steel and vanadium prices drove out high-cost co-product supply. Uh, an example of that is the Heifeld Steel and Vanadium in South Africa in 2014 closed, and that cut 12% of global vanadium supply. Between 2014 and 2016, Chinese co-product supply of vanadium dropped 22%. Another factor is rising environmental standards in China that has impacted vanadium producers' ability to access vanadium-rich slags. There's also new standards happening in China in relation to steel rebar, so that will um, increase vanadium's use in rebar. Uh, so that was announced in January 2018. Traders have been jumping all over that, and it won't take effect until November 2018. The headline here is CRU expects high prices to last several years in the vanadium market. And that's not even talking about the vanadium redox battery projects, which are just um, starting to scale up a bit. Roskill put out a study on chromium, they note that after having quadrupled in 2016 and then fallen back substantially in the first half of 17, chrome ore prices have been more stable over the past year, oscillating around $200 per ton during the first half of 2018, with a slight upward trend. And they note that there's oversupply in the market, encouraged by a very high prices in early 2017, and that appears to be preventing chrome iron ore prices from rising steadily in line with production costs. Roskill notes that six countries account for nearly 90% of chrome ore production in 2017. South Africa, Kazakhstan, India, Turkey, Finland, and Zimbabwe. And South Africa accounts for more than half of the global total. Roskill also expects secondary supply to reach a production ceiling over the next five years. They also note that Zimbabwe may be poised to become a growing primary chrome white supplier in light of growing international investments following the country's recent political changes. Uh, none of this takes into account the Ring of Fire, so that's always something that's uh, stuck with me with the Ring of Fire uh, talk in Ontario. Nobody really talks about the chromium market. 
there really isn't this strong demand for ring of fire chromium and the you know the real money in in it is made in the ferro vanadium and that takes a lot of energy so uh you know ontario used to have an energy advantage but that's gone now Roskill also put out a uh, note on cobalt prices this is a uh, much sunnier here very strong demand they note that uh, demand for cobalt increased at a rate of 8% per year between 2010 and 2017 to reach 118,000 tons. The battery sector is, of course, the biggest growing market, and this increased at a rate of 13.5% per year between 2010 and 2017, so that batteries now account for more than half of total cobalt consumption, 53%. Roskill notes that demand for lithium-ion batteries is set to grow enormously over the coming decade, driven mostly by the electrification of the automotive sector. Demand for cobalt in batteries is expected to grow at 14.5% per year to 2027, by which point demand from this end-use sector alone could exceed 240,000 tons, or twice the size of the total market in 2017. And then uh, with such demand, in nickel alloys, uh, uh, by 2027, the total market could exceed 310,000 tons, so almost triple uh, last year's amount. The Silver Institute also hired a CRU to look at silver in the uh, Green Revolution, as they call it. They estimate that roughly 820 million ounces of silver will be used by the global solar energy uh, sector through 2030. With respect to electric vehicles, um, it's not as direct, but they say a potential game-changer for transportation with relation to EVs is the use of inductively coupled power transfer technology to wirelessly, wirelessly charge vehicles using silver-plated induction coils. So if this takes place, uh, about 725 million ounces of silver demand will, be, uh, will happen through 2030. PwC put out a study on IPOs and uh, it's been pretty quiet, uh, although slightly improving. For the first half of the year, on all Canadian exchanges, you had 20 issues with a value of $1.1 billion, compared to, uh, in 2017, 16 issues of $2.9 billion. But the most uh, active area was in real estate and recreational cannabis. So uh, mining, not such a big uh, player there. And the PDAC and Oren Inc., they teamed up to put together a mar larger uh, report called The State of Mineral Finance 2018, Gaining Momentum. Some of their stats here, I think Orning calculated it. They found that equity raises by junior companies listed on the TSX Venture increased by 18% compared to 2016, and while the CSE recorded a 123% increase in funds raised, while on the TSX it declined 32% for juniors. In 2017, bought deal transactions became more significant, with their value increasing 12% while best efforts dropped 21% and 15% for brokered and non-brokered transactions. They note that uh, the value of equity financings for projects targeting minerals associated with battery technology grew 200% in 2017, while uh, precious and base metals fell by 12% and 11%. One of the weightier news items lately was the um, Glencore. They've just said they received a subpoena from the U.S. Department of Justice demanding records related to its compliance with American anti-bribery and money laundering laws in the DRC, Nigeria, and Venezuela. And there's a major story here in the Wall Street Journal where they uh, came across a contract that had previously not been disclosed that saw a Gertler uh, 
company De Novo Congo SPRL being paid $6 million a year uh, for back office services, including tax advisory and database administration. Um, and that contract ended in early 2017. Uh, so it continues to be complicated in the DRC. Let's take a break, and we will return with that panel talking about the future of mining, especially the uh, communication aspect of mining. And so we've got a great panel today of uh, three innovation and technology thought leaders who, over the next half hour to 35 minutes, what we're going to do is explore the range of dimensions in the, uh, that, you know, the Canadian mining industry, where it's doing and what it's, what it's doing and where it's going in terms of the innovation space. Many of you last year would have seen a federal government program uh, that asked a number of industry sectors across Canada to create uh, super clusters of innovation. And there was a very good one that came out of the mining industry that unfortunately wasn't uh, funded uh, ultimately by the federal government, but is still pushing forward with some of the cool things that it's doing in, in the mining technology space. And so uh, with our, without any further ado with our panel, we have Liam Fitzgerald on my far right, and Liam is, is a tax partner with PwC, but importantly, he's also the national mining lead. Uh, we, we do a lot of work with PwC across our energy and mining spaces, and they're a great, uh, great company to collaborate with, great organization. In the middle of is George Grabel, who is, runs the Global Mining and Metals for SAP, and he's with us today from Germany. And then finally, we have Steve De Jong, uh, who's here in a dual role as a technology startup company, but also a very experienced uh, mining executive and currently chair of Integra Resources. And you'll know Integra because he was also chair of Integra Gold when it was sold to Eldorado a few years ago on a very nice sale. So what I'm going to get the panelists to do is reflect for three or four minutes on their take on the big things that are reshaping the industry, and this is just not all a software play. It's what's going on in the mine site, what's going on in the development process, what's going on in everything from blockchain to machine intelligence. We're going to start with Liam. Thank you. Um, so when we look at data from an accounting firm perspective, we're always looking at it based on what do we do with the data. So every time I talk to mining companies now, it's never about obtaining data. What we usually find is they have mountains of data. All it is now is about managing data and processing data and using data. So probably the best example we've been collaborating with was Goldcorp with their IBM Watson initiative, looking at cognizant community, um, computing or artificial intelligence. So probably the biggest advancement we're seeing and what we're trying to assist with is looking at data, particularly on the exploration cycle. So you've got the most data in the cycle now is at exploration stage. You've got the sampling, you've got the core data, you've got the most data you can have in the limited amount of resources. So how can you use cognitive computing or artificial intelligence to take that data to reduce the amount of data you have to get the most success? So what we're looking at, for example, is how do you take a core sample? And instead of taking 100 drill holes with core samples, how do you take two drill holes and then try and extrapolate using the data to reduce the number of drill holes you do in a sequence to see if you can actually get the same result with 10 drill holes instead of 100. So we're trying to look at how do we look at that cognitive, cognitive computing, so I'm Australian so I 
can never get that thing out, to try and use the artificial intelligence. So that, and the biggest example we have is Goldcorp right now with Red Lake, when they're, they're using IBM, using Watson, to try and do iterative approaches with the data. So once you look at the data once, can you look at it twice, three times, learn as you go through the data to try and then get a predictive model. If we can then do a predictive model, you'll see less and less junior companies explaining how many drill meters they do. They get less assessed on the volume of data they get and more assessed on what they're doing with the data and the quality of the data. So we think that's probably the biggest thing that we've seen in the last 12 months. Thank you very much, Liam. George, as we segue to you in terms of what we see SAP looking at globally. I, I tried to use the term run your mind like a factory because what, what you really need to achieve is to first of all have a mind plan that you execute against, which is also linked up to a financial plan. And then secondly, monitor if you're up to the plan. And uh, if there's a deviation, make adjustments. And for that, you need a strong interaction between mind technical solutions and a back-end ERP. So with that, I will probably have a chance to get a bit deeper into that subject. But as an introduction of where we see technology being used, those are the, the things I would like to share. Perfect. That's a great, uh, a great framework. And, and Steve, uh, Steve is here, as I mentioned, in two capacities. And uh, at the back of the room is a wonderful display of the Verify technology. Your, your framework for the, what you're seeing as the big moves now. I was fortunate at a young age in the industry to get exposure to the different, different parts of a mine. When I was 27, I became the CEO of a $10 million exploration company. Uh, and that was in 2012. And about two weeks later, the price of gold peaked at $1,900. I spent five years kind of with that company and it was acquired for $600 million in July of 2017 and now uh, it'll produce 50,000 ounces this year and 150,000 ounces next year and so on. I got to see from expiration the entire way through into development and now get to watch from afar in construction. What we, one of the things we really tried to embrace at Integra Gold was innovation and technology. And right now it's a bit of a buzzword. Everyone's kind of, it's either machine learning or blockchain or artificial intelligence. I think that'll continue, and the way the industry works right now, blockchain's exciting, so everybody kind of attaches blockchain to what they do, and they get to watch their share prices double. I think what we need is an industry to actually truly be successful in innovating and embracing technologies to create a bit of a framework in a system or a platform that, that allows for this. At Integra Gold, one of the things we did in 2014 was we did a crowdsourcing challenge. We made an acquisition, acquired a big database, but we just wanted the infrastructure. So this database of information, we had 12 drawer rigs turning at the time. We didn't have time to look at it. So we did a million-dollar crowdsourcing challenge. We tried to pay that with flow through. Uh, that didn't work. Um, <clears throat> but what we saw was we saw uh, 1,400 people from 90 countries give their ideas on what we should do with this data and how we could apply different technologies to it to make the next big gold discovery. The next year after that, kind of going on the back of this, we did something called Disrupt Mining with Goldcorp. And we co-hosted this event, and we had 150 submissions from all, all across the planet on what are different ideas um, that could disrupt mining. So I like to think sort of we started something, and we got to see it again. Obviously, Integra Gold's not around anymore, but we got to see it again this year at Disrupt Mining um, that Goldcorp put on, where we're starting to, to create a bit of a framework for innovation and disruption. And through that, I think there are a lot of good ideas out there already that exist that just need a platform to be able to present themselves. One of the finalists from Disrupt Mining, when we co-hosted with Integra Gold and, and Goldcorp, was that I ran into at the Goldcorp event this year. And I asked him sort of 12 months later, how has your life changed? Because he didn't win the competition. He was just up there on stage. Uh, and his, his idea was using 
um, bacteria using biology instead of cyanide to, to leach gold. And he said from the moment he got up on that stage, his entire life changed. And he has had nonstop business from big companies who are starting to push this technology forward. And in the five years leading up to that, his technology hadn't really changed at all. It was because he was given a platform to do so. So I'm, I'm a big believer that kind of if we can find a way to create a framework for technology, for innovation, then we're going to see our industry make leaps and bounds from where we are today. And a lot of those ideas probably already exist. We just have to kind of create something that allows themselves to, to show themselves. Perfect. Thanks, Steve. So, so maybe if we can take exactly what the three of you just said and sort of put a, a, a value creation lens on that in terms of investors typically think about great management teams, a good prospects and that sort of thing. Should the investors of the future be thinking about a great technology position for a mining company as they think about where they're going to place their capital? What we've been advocating for for a while is that mining can't keep going back to the same investor group. So you not only have to look at technology on the basis of reducing costs, getting more efficient, and producing immediate shareholder value, what you have to look at is how do you have someone who's 15 right now who's glued to their iPhone invest in a mining company as soon as they actually make a paycheck when they're 23 or 25? Because you take most of the kids I know barely know what a mining company is. Like my two twin nine-year-olds are a little embarrassed if they tell their friends I'm in the mining industry. They kind of just say, Dad's an accountant. Um, so the problem we have is that how do you get, you'll need to use technology and to show that you're technologically savvy, not just to get the results in the company, but to attract the next investor. Because when you're competing with Apple, with Google, with Amazon, like I've seen, um, I went through a tour of an Amazon uh, warehouse and have these throwing robots where instead of people picking parcels up, they'll throw a parcel with accuracy over 100 metres so it's caught at the other end and put on a conveyor belt. That's what they do, and kids think that's cool. They, they don't have any trouble attracting investors. If you put your hat on a gold company, how does a gold company compete with that for a limited amount of capital? George? In my viewpoint, the major driver for shareholder value of a mining organization is essentially two factors. The one is the life of mine and the value of their resources reserves. And uh, I think a mining company needs to balance those two factors out properly. What if uh, I have a solution that can up-to-date tell you the value of the resources and reserves like an inventory management system? And then also shows you the, the depletion or any updates from new explorations or any updates from new test drills up-to-date. That gives you complete visibility into, into what, uh, what, what, what the value is that sits uh, in, in the mine. We are working with one partner um, a mine uh, technical system expert called MineRP on exactly that, that concept. A second thing that uh, I think can drive shareholder value is everybody uh, has a proper mine plan in place, but everybody admits that they are struggling updating a mine plan on a, on a shorter notice. It usually takes four or five months, most companies admit, to build a mine plan, which is then valid for the for the next uh, two years, three years, and then you redo it again in, in yearly cycles. What if you can do a mine plan within, within a few days, do a few, let's say, simulations of different scenarios, and then pick the best? And whenever the market changes, gold price goes up unexpectedly, you, you adjust to a different version because then you can start mining, let's say, lower-grade assets 
that are still profitable, are profitable under a high gold price and the other way around. So, perfect. Thank you, George. And, and Steve, you've been in that position of having to create that shareholder value. In, Tell us how your thoughts on how that technology helps influence that. So I, I think I'll, I'll build a little bit on what Liam said because I'm, I'm a big believer that, um, well, I agree that there's a, there's a lot of untapped capital out there um, for people who just find mining convoluted or just don't understand it. And whether we like it or not, the way people process information is going to continue to change via Snapchat, Instagram, even how kind of a Bloomberg or Reuters or anything presents news now. And we have to address that. We can't continue to just prevent, present information in convoluted models, tech reports, press releases, whatever it may be. As Bill mentioned, I'm, I'm involved with two companies. I'm chairman of a company called Integra Resources. So we started a new company and we bought an old asset from Kinross. Um, that asset produced for 30 years from the 70s to the 90s and then for 20 years from the 1880s to the 1910. We're looking at using technology to go back, pull out that information together, and present it in such a way where any millennial, anybody can, through just their phone or a website, understand what the value proposition. That's sort of that's oversimplifying it, but the example I'll give is the other t the other company that I'm involved with called Verify Technology. What we're trying to do is create a platform where anybody can learn, can can come in and within five minutes understand the value proposition of any specific company and what we do as an industry. We have an office, there's 12 of us in the office. 10 of those people do not have any mining experience. It's an office, it's how you'd picture a tech office. A week ago, I took a model for a company called Pure Gold, and it took me two and a half minutes, and I timed it, to explain to everybody using a, a colorful 3D model that we could spin around and is very interactive to explain the value proposition of this company. Here's the old shaft, here's the old workings. And at the end of it, eight of the 10 people, uh, we went around the room and asked, said when the next press release comes out, they're going to understand the context or the value of those drill results and how they are in relation to the existing value proposition of that company. I think that's very powerful, and I think I'm a big believer on, on what Liam mentioned, that there is an untapped, that there are untapped investors out there, and if we can find ways to present our information um, to them, we're going to attract a lot of that capital back. Otherwise, what we're, what, what's going to happen is we'll continue the circle of, of looking for your traditional resource investors, which I believe, unless something changes, that's maybe a price of gold increase or, or resource increase or something else, will continue to shrink. So just then, I'm going to work backwards this way, because when you think about, you were talking about uh, uh, the, the, disrupt, uh, the mining uh, disruption um, uh, competition and you had 150 ideas, there's real opportunities to use technology to reshape the mining supply chain for the future in terms of attracting new ideas, new concepts, new companies into the space. So how do you think we as an industry need to articulate the fact that we're not that fossilizing pound in the earth with the old technology from 40 years ago? And we see this in the oil and gas industry in the very same way. So how do we use, how do we talk about technology in a way that gives comfort not only to policymakers, to politicians, to the general public, to investors? Not to oversimplify, I think the answer is we need success stories. We need, we need to find kind of here's where we use technology in an exploration setting and it led to a discovery. Or here's how we changed kind of the amount of cyanide that was used or how we reclaimed this mine site using technology. And I think if we, I think if we can start to show that and... Off the top of my head, I can't think of what those examples uh, might be. If we can start to show that and embrace technology and then as an industry get together and kind of push forward that message that we are not dinosaurs, that there, there is technology, we are embracing technology and, and here are examples of that success. I think on the back of that, we will be able to attract back investors. But until that point, um, I think we will, whether it's fair or not, we will get painted with that brush of it's an archaic industry 
that our parents used to invest in. And George, your thoughts on that? My thoughts go in a similar direction. I, I think mining companies are technology companies. They just don't market it properly. I've done a lot of work with automotive uh, five, six, seven, eight years ago and for quite a lot, lot of period of time. They always viewed as the leading edge in terms of technology. But then you work with mining companies and you realize, well, actually, their IT organizations, they are as technologically advanced as, as these guys, but it's, they are not viewed as, as, as such. So I think it's more like a, a perception thing that you can change using modern tools, modern tools, what we have just seen with uh, Verify in the, in the back of the room. Yeah, I think too it's, um, it's communication. You're like I, I subscribe to a lot of press releases and you kind of, your soul dies a little bit every, if you get another drilling update at 9am in the morning from, they always, the press release goes out at 4.35 and I get it before I get to work and it's like 15 drilling updates. It's trying to communicate. So technology not only is operational, but it's also looking at how do you, how do you change like an annual general shareholders meeting? Do you start having virtual conferences? How do you broaden your stakeholders? You take, I attend the Barrick AGM every year and all, they always fly in, the activist shareholders are always flying in. And then you have to deal with the Q&A at this one setting and an in-person meeting. Why couldn't you do that virtually? That you try and get the stakeholders in and have a virtual conference. Also, you could look at having like virtual safety demonstrations. For example, my, uh, the best man at my wedding is uh, he's a VP operations at Boeing. And he actually took me there and he showed me how they maintain and inspect plane wings. Now this interesting conundrum that you can't exactly get a big three ring bind of maintenance schedules up in your harness while you're inspecting a wing. So they do it with wearable technology. So they have basically a set of glasses they put in their eyes and they can actually tap the side of the glasses to get the maintenance manual across the eye line, like it comes up visually. Then they inspect the wing and then if someone at a different plant on the other side of the United States wants to inspect the same thing at the same time, they can communicate through an earpiece look at the same piece of the wing, look at the same piece of the manual and actually talk about it. And they're both suspended underneath this wing. And they actually put that on YouTube. So you can go on YouTube and they can see what Boeing does to inspect a wing. Like, but mining doesn't do that. They kind of issue, right now we think it's press releases and how many people actually read press releases? Like I get press releases from my clients but I don't read all the press releases or news. Like they have to find a different way of communicating and to connect and make sure that people see what they're doing because we don't, as uh, Stephen said, you don't see the same innovation mantra for mining. You All you see is the same methodologies being used and the same communication being used. Okay, so maybe we'll turn to the audience at this juncture and find out if there's any questions for the panel. I'd be interested to hear the panel's view. Do you feel that the regulator, whether it's a mine site regulator or the public markets regulator, is, uh, as far as the Canadian situation is concerned is catching up or falling further behind when it comes to the implementation of uh, technology into mining? I, I think if we, <clears throat> if we do a good job communicating what we do, and this goes through in how we market to investors, but also how we market to communities and, and various stakeholders for all these companies, I, I personally believe you're going to see this, the role of the regulator shrink. Because if you have, if everyone has transparent access to information, you will, you'll never be a 100% self-regulated market. But 
in, in a transparent market, the role of the regulator gets to sit back a little bit and, and allow sort of a much more efficient regulation process naturally take place. In that sense, I don't know if the regulators need to really catch up from a technological standpoint. I think they need to allow kind of communication and even the way that we use press releases and everything else, allow that to evolve. Um, the best example I can think of is, I believe, um, the SEC now allows uh, American companies, um, they don't have to put press releases out across the, the wire. They can say, at, at this time, we will be posting our press release on this social medium, be it Facebook or whatever else it may be. That is now viewed as full dissemination. I think those, those type of changes, if the regulators can continue to embrace that type of change and, and evolve as technology evolves, I think there's real opportunity um, for how companies communicate. George. Yeah, not much to add, actually. It's, uh, it's, it's about transparency, and uh, the analytical tools are there. The connectivity into what, uh, what's happening in the mines is there. If you, if you can make all of that transparent, uh, then uh, the need for regulators will, will go, go down or actually will become less. Yeah, but I suppose if you look at it, most bureaucracies, if they're frightened of something, do slow things down. You take, I'm a tax pro professional by trade, and uh, in only very limited circumstances can we send an email to someone at the Canada Revenue Agency, because they don't trust that medium. So if you're dealing with agencies which can't quite get used to email, which has been around since I started work in the mid-90s, they do tend to put brakes on things, same as how successful were the crowdfunders approaching the OSC. Like they struggled and they went there and they talked to them a lot about crowdfunding and regulation didn't get very far and the crowdfunding phenomenon has died down a lot. I think two or three years ago, crowdfunding was going to be huge in Canada. Then they had a simple conundrum of how to do a flow-through share through a crowdfunding uh, brokered placement. They couldn't get their head around it, so it hasn't, ha hasn't happened. I'm touching on something you both mentioned earlier, which was bringing in the next generation of investor and also being able to get non-mining people to simply understand what a mining project is about. And one of my frustrations is I know how to read something on CEDAR and, and the PEAs and that sort of thing and, and the resource statements, but I can't see how a retail investor could possibly get a, their head around the really complex numbers and put it into context. Do you think that either the regulators or the industry is going to go towards finding a way to simplify that in order to make the average investors, which really do push share prices, be able to understand technology and, and, and geo, geoscience data in a more practical way? I, I, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think no. I, I don't think we need to change 43101 or information on that sense. I think if you think of an efficient market or an open marketplace, I think what we need to do is allow people to come in and I, I'll give the best example I can think of is Reddit. Reddit, sort of the best news, the most trusted news, or kind of whatever's the most relevant is just voted to the top, and whatever's not considered relevant is voted to the bottom. I think if information is all presented in a standardized format, what you're going to start to see is thought leaders in the industry who can understand and uh, are credible the same way we view analysts and, and others, but that's kind of a, that's a very small group given the amount of investors that are out there. I think you'll start to see kind of the crowd mentality come in and start to filter through what is good and, and, and what is not. Going forward, um, I think, kind of going back to the same thing, I think companies do need to find ways to present that information. 
the CDR example is, is, a, is a great one. I think CDR, SETI, all of these kind of archaic websites need to be brought up to date regardless. It was about three months ago I sat down with our team of developers and I said, who can tell me kind of how many shares I own in Integra Resources? I'm an insider, it's public. Not one of them could get through SETI to, to figure that out. And these are people with technical backgrounds. That needs to change but regardless. But that that's should be a, a quick fix, which will probably happen in the next 30 years or so. Um, but I, I do think that if we find a way to present information in sort of a standardized format, you will see, be it analysts or just technical, technically capable people kind of start to push that news to the top and see the stuff that is, isn't as relevant or not, not as exciting to the bottom. One of the things we're trying to come up with right now are a set of principles to abide by. And expiration companies right now, it's sort of you're reliant on, well, we hit 10 grams over 13 meters, whatever it may be. Companies should be rated on different, whether it's expiration development or production. Maybe for expiration companies, it's how many meters are you drilling per dollar in G&A, whatever it may be. And I think if we start to organize in very simplified terms that any investor can understand, you would be able to present companies at value proposition and find a way to rank what's good and what's not. I tried to um, do an analogy with the manufacturing industry. Many of the manufacturers have come up with something like a factory tour to show people, everybody, how they come from the raw material to the final product. Why don't mining companies do the, the same? I'm not speaking about taking thousands of people down to an underground mine and show them where the blasting is happening. But with new technologies, they can show it from the in-situ rock to the broken rock to the crusher to the, uh, to the processing plant and tell everybody it takes whatever one ton, a ton to blast to get 10 grams of gold and that will be processed into so many ounces of, of, of a gold bar. So if you make this visibility of a manufacturing process also for a, for a mining company, I think that that adds a lot to the to the credibility. So in a way, you take the lid off the mine. Yeah, I think uh, it's probably more emphasis on the mining company. Like it's hard to expect a regulator to do anything except regulate. It's kind of what they do. Um, you take when the ESMA reporting happened last year, the first time the transparency reporting in Canada happened in May. NRCAN wanted that information in XBLR format so it could be readable. Uh, when we met with NRCAN most companies simply just PDF'd it. So instead of having readable data, because what they wanted is data that they could use, people would go into the NICAN website, extract the data, and actually tell a story. But most mining companies are scared the life out of them, so apparently 92% of them just took their Word document that they typed out, PDF'd it, and then gave it to the government, because they just simply didn't want to give their data to anyone else because they thought someone would create the story. It was a bit of a missed opportunity because the mining companies could have created their own story with their own data, but they kind of decided to do the easy route, which is basically not comply with the law and just basically put just numbers on a sheet as if you wrote it in pencil. Um, so that's where mining companies need to take more action on it to actually explain the numbers, explain the story, and kind of take control of the narrative. Regulators can't do that. So a regulator had that simple request, give us readable data, and the companies didn't comply. There was no penalty for not doing it, but they just didn't comply. Um, the mining companies could have embraced it, created the story, and then started this whole dialogue about what they pay to government, because there's a big story there. They don't realise that 
Um, the, the resource industry in Canada is the biggest contributor to tax revenue. You take Potash Corp represents about 23% of the GDP of Saskatchewan. They pay $1.3 billion. Like if they stop paying tax to Saskatchewan, the government goes broke. They, you create a story around that. So it's, it's critical, but that's, mining companies have to embrace it. If they don't embrace it, the regulators aren't. Like, why is CEDAR going to do much? They don't, they don't care. They just care that they just want the documents filed in that long list and you can't find anything. So. so just as we're here in the home stretch, I want to stitch a bunch of things together because it's been fascinating in terms of, we talked about the next generation of investors, but what about the next generation of mining industry employees who might have the view that, uh, again, this is a fossilizing industry, I'm going to spend my time in technology or doing something else. So uh, I'll, I'll ask this question fairly open-ended for you allowed to back into it is, should mining operators have sound social media strategies? relative to communication, investor confidence, and what, what, you know, any particular ways of tackling that for a typical mining company uh, who, who might say, uh, you know, we're more used to monitoring social media to see if our name shows up in, in, a, in a bad way than actually using a social media strategy to advance our business. I think, I think it's absolutely essential. You take, um, I was at PDAC this year uh, listening to one of the keynote speakers, and I cringed in his first 15 minutes of his speech how he he basically described his life as a 22-year-old flogging around the bush in the Yukon and how hard it was and there was flies everywhere and I had to sleep on a wet sleeping bag and I had to walk uphill twice and all that kind of stuff. And you're thinking, well, and he's, I know he's trying to tell a story, but do you think anyone who's under 30 is going to be really enamoured with joining the mining industry, thinking they're going to flog around the bush? But when you look at what his story was, he could have, you can use social media to your advantage of twisting a good story around that, which is something different, but adding that technology, where you instead, you've got to create the narrative. So mining companies haven't quite embraced creating the narrative, which involves all, all sources of media. It's coming back to what I mentioned earlier. Your narrative isn't through your investor relations group issuing press releases. It's through creating a narrative, creating a feed, and getting people who are under 40 to create that feed. If you don't go like for like, it's like me trying to hide my uh, daughter's nine-year-old party yesterday. I, I didn't talk to them much because I don't know how to talk to a nine-year-old, but a nine-year-old can talk to a nine-year-old. It's the same as getting a millennial talking to a millennial to try and create these strategies. There's no point the current generation trying to create their own social media strategy. Then, Like Stephen mentioned, you have to surround yourself with people who understand the strategy to get the message out. And George? I think uh, it's, it's essential that... Uh, companies use these kind of uh, channels to present themselves in the public view differently. And again, specifically addressing those areas where traditionally the viewpoints are more on the negative side. They should highlight on what they do in terms of environment, what they do in terms of uh, keeping people safe. Um, you only read about the incidents. You never read about all the things that they do to avoid them. But, uh, well, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's still not enough. Those kind of things shared in public media is, uh, would also be very helpful to, yeah, to make a better public view of a mine company. Final word on the panel goes to, uh, to Steve, who's out to disrupt the whole uh, web world and uh, with some great thinking around how the industry can present itself. I think uh, social media in itself given the size of a lot of companies and just the number of them, I think we have to be um, 
we, we can't be naive to the fact that we're probably never, as, as, as the juniors, kind of say the sub $50 million companies, it's going to be difficult to get a big social media following. There's 1,200 of us, and it's just the, the reality to kind of our existence. I definitely agree with Liam. I think before, kind of, I don't think there's any quick fix like a social media or, or kind of create a fa Facebook page or Instagram or anything like that. I think companies need to change the narrative. And even, even in the conversation, it's, it's, it's almost like we're condescending towards how kind of we embrace technology. I don't think that's true at all. I think that the industry does a great job of doing it, but we need to change the narrative and, and find better ways to explain that to our stakeholders, to our investors, um, whoever it may be. Um, if we can change the narrative, I think the social media following is, as one example of a channel, I think there will be a lot of other channels that come our way as well. Um, one example I'll give is at, at PDAC, um, we put out a YouTube video called The Verify School of Mining Promotion. We just wanted to have a conversation around sort of a lot of the things that are going to be said at PDAC, and it was kind of two-minute, two-and-a-half-minute video of one-liners that everyone's probably heard at every booth, kind of funny things that mining promoters say to pitch their stories. And within about 24 hours, we had, I don't know, it was eight or 9,000 views on this, and it sort of, we were able to start a conversation, and then even myself going out and, and kind of talking to investors about Integral Resources, every time I said open in depth, I had to catch myself. And we were able to start a conversation around that. And I think if we can get, as an industry, get more creative in the kind of the narrative and what we do, I think the, the value proposition that we communicate to our stakeholders and our shareholders will follow close behind. I, I don't believe that kind of any one social media um, or, or there is sort of a quick fix to, to any of anything that we do, but I think all those tools are going to be great to kind of create that emotional connection between what we do and, and investors. And if we can do that, be it kind of as you mentioned, pictures of kind of the environmental work that we're doing, the community work that we're doing, other things like that, I think if we can start to create that narrative, we will see investors come back into the space. Perfect. Well, thank you, Liam. Thank you, George. And thank you, Stephen. And so uh, we're going to segue to our next presentation. Thanks. just about does it for this week's episode uh, meanwhile we continue to put out our specials every issue our next special coming up is called canada top 10 that's where we count down the top canadian companies in different uh, categories and then following that we're going to have an industrial minerals special that will include base metal companies iron ore and coal and then we'll follow that up with a u.s top 10 issue if you want to support the podcast by all means, uh, vote uh, a like on whatever platform you're using and uh, recommend it. And as always, you can subscribe to our print edition, take out ads. We appreciate all the support you can give us. And uh, that's it for this week. See you next time. Bye-bye.